Welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. My name is Katie Kessner. And I'm Claire Kaplan. Before we get started, once again, I want to remind our listeners that sometimes the discussions in this podcast can be difficult to hear, especially for survivors of trauma. So we encourage all of you to care for your safety and well-being and reach out for emotional support from family or friends, a counselor if you have one, or a hotline. Additional resources may be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website, and we'll share that address with you at the end of the podcast. Thank you so much, Claire. And our episode today, we are so pleased to be joined with um, Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth, it's so nice to meet you. And as we always like to do is share a bit about your bio, who you are, where you've been, where you live, um, you know, just a mini sketch of who you are. Yep. Um, hello. Um, thank you for inviting me to come and be on your podcast. Um, so I'm Elizabeth Shane and I live in the UK. Um, so I'm between Cambridge and London, about half an hour from Cambridge and about an hour and a half from London. And I am a poet and author of two poetry books. Um, I'm a mum to a very active nine-year-old and been married for 10 years. Well, 11 years. I'm not sure. I can't remember now. Um, I've been with my husband now for 20 years um, beforehand. And yeah, so that's basically what I do. And I also am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And I'm using my voice to try and raise awareness of the impact. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. That's very, um, you know, we're so excited to speak with you about what, what happened, but also what you've done with that experience. And so proud of you for getting where you are in life with a nine-year-old and a, a husband of some number of years and a partner clearly for, it sounds like two decades. So that sounds really encouraging and we can't wait to hear how you journeyed that far in life. Um, so maybe the childhood abuse experience, could you share with us a little bit about what that was for you and, and where and when it happens? Yes. So I was about three or four when I had my first memories of childhood sexual abuse. So the abuse started um, with my dad. Um, The memories were extremely fragmented and don't really recall exactly what happened. Um, But I do recall having the immense fear of being alone in the bedroom at nighttime and, you know, trying to pretend that I was dead. Um, or fast asleep so I wouldn't you know be disturbed um, because I was so scared of what could happen Um, my dad um, primarily wasn't the main abuser um, but my half sibling from my dad's first marriage was um, and that started from the age of about four so my first memories of that was when I was about four years old um, and continued up until I was about 10 or 11 so that's what basically happened Um, and throughout the whole time that I was being abused there was nobody who knew what was going on in the house but we lived under umbrella of fear because my dad was a very controlling man he was very scary and um, he liked to keep us all in silence so he had three children from his first marriage and they, you know, lived with my mom and my dad. Um, but we wasn't really aware of having half siblings. We were kept behind closed doors for the majority of the time that we were growing up. 
So I wasn't even aware that I had, a, you know, a couple of half siblings living with us, which is very strange. So I, I have hardly any memories of them at all um, growing up. Um, and even in like dinner times and stuff like that, I have no recollection of eating dinner together. It's just like blank faces at a table, but I have no memory of sitting there with anybody. We lived in the, um, I, would, I wouldn't say a very religious household, but we brought, were brought up as Jewish. Um, you know, we come from a Jewish background and we kind of like paraded at synagogue. So we were seen to be a um, very normal, healthy, loving family from the outside. But from, if you look inside, it wasn't like that at all. We had a very different kind of background to what people thought we were going through. We lived under very critical um, voices of my dad, um, who just basically, I think from his own background, whatever happened in his background, I think he brought it into the relationship and into the family. Elizabeth, he, be, before you keep going, I, if you don't mind, I, I would like to back up on a couple statements so that we you know, just kind yeah. of keep the dialogue going. When you said the memory of eating dinner together escaped you, yeah. from what age to what age would you say that was for you? I think from the age of about three or four up until probably about nine or ten. Okay, and then what did you start to remember at age ten? What did that look like when you I think did? There was Go ahead. I think there was a couple of instances at um, at the dinner table where it would be quite violent. Um, so there would be lots of arguments at the dinner table, and I would between my between my half siblings and my mom, um, because obviously they were her stepchildren. There was a lot of um, difficulties in that relationship. Anyway, um, unfortunately, the children's um, upbringing before they moved in with my mom and dad were very traumatic for them because their their birth their birth mom um, unfortunately had mental health problems and she committed suicide um, and so they had to go into care and then my dad basically took them out of care to live with you know him and my mom um, but unfortunately there was a lot of domestic violence in the relationship between my dad and you know the half siblings which were obviously his children, um, but not the normal kind of domestic violence that you would imagine where you would actually see somebody being hit, although there was a couple of occasions that did happen. But it was more like the psychological aspect of it, the emotional aspect of it, um, the controlling that he had also with my mum where he didn't want her to go out. He wasn't allowed anybody to come to the house. And I think that's because they probably would have seen what was going on or they would have seen kind of like very unhappy children that were very quiet and very silent and you would expect if there's a lot of siblings in the house there would be lots of noise but actually it wasn't like that at all so we have all these step siblings right did you have any blood siblings around and were you the youngest always at the table from your step and your immediate i yeah so i um i mean the step siblings they're that they're my half siblings because we all have the same dad um, and I have one full sibling, and I was the youngest. Okay. Um, so at the table, yeah, I was the youngest at the table. And that, that always brings me to this question, Elizabeth. You know, since you were abused, you said both by a step 
sibling, as well as your father. Are, were there any other girls at this table that you feared might have also been in your same shoes? Unfortunately, yes. Um, and although I'm never going to 100% know for sure, there were allegations that were brought against my dad by my half-siblings when I was much older. And unfortunately, um, it didn't go any further. So, you know, he, he was arrested and it just got dropped. So nothing was taken further by the police and it just all got covered up. Did you, have, did you talk with your half-siblings about that at any point? After that happened, I wasn't allowed to see them. And so, no, I didn't discuss anything with them. Although at a later stage, I did manage to speak with one of them. And we did talk about it. And a lot of the stuff that she had been through was very similar to, I guess, the sexual acts that were carried out on me by my half-brother. So that was, you know... That was a bit of an eye-opener, I have to say, and a bit of a shock. So you're, so she was abused by your father, or your father and also her brother? Or was that the father was doing the same stuff that the brother did? I think my father was doing the same stuff that my, my brother did. That your brother did? That he, uh, yeah. That they I, both targeted you. Oh, and yeah. I was thinking about one more thing, Elizabeth, which I've never you know, thought about before. In describing your experience... I wondered if, do you, I've never thought, Claire, either about this idea. Father mentoring, mentoring, the worst word ever, mm-hmm. on how to become a perpetrator or role modeling perpetration for a stepson. What do you think about that? Well, it's also, it's possible he also may have been abusing the boys. You know, there's, know, there's always that. I know, I know. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, what are your thoughts, yeah. Elizabeth, looking back? I know from from what I know about my dad's background is he went through a very traumatic experience as a child um, living in a different country. So he wasn't from um, the UK. He was from Burma, which is now called Myanmar. And at the time, they had the war that was going on between Japan and uh, Myanmar. And I know that there was like a lot of gunfighting and he witnessed people being shot and stuff like that. And they had to escape kind of like the conflict into a different country. So, you know, whatever he's experienced, it wasn't something that he ever spoke about, but we knew that there was something, because my mum always used to say, you know, he doesn't like to talk about it and, you know, don't ask him any questions. So at the time, I just assumed that it was something that was very difficult, you know, for him having to escape. I think he watched his own mum get really ill and he had to save a life. And... Whatever he went through, it was not something that he was ever willing to share with us. But I think whatever he experienced, it carried with him because it just felt like very intergenerational trauma that was just carried on. And although my memories of him abusing me was only for a short period of time, so it went on for maybe like, I don't know, it might have gone on for half a year, it might have been one or two episodes, I don't know. But his behavior was very predatory. So, you know, he would be spying on me. He would admit to watching me. Mm. Um, and, you know, he, he would come into my room constantly. And I, I would have to, like, barricade my door at times because I didn't know what he wanted, what he was, you know, up to. And because I was being regularly sexually abused by my half-brother, it just, 
you know, left me on high state of alert all the time. How and when did you did you finally start delving into this history and this trauma you experienced and start that process of the journey of recovery from it? It took a very long time. It took from, I think, as a, as a child growing up into adulthood, I didn't delve into anything, um, even though everything that I was experiencing was affecting my behavior and was affecting kind of like my relationships and how I kind of like viewed the world and how I viewed myself. It was only really after we went through the process of adopting our son that I had to write about my experience of what I'd been through as a child for the social workers in order as part of the application. And when I wrote about my experience, I wrote it like it was about somebody else. So I was completely distanced from what I was writing. It didn't mean actually anything to me. I could just recite it like it was just lines off the paper. And it was only when the social workers interpreted what I had written and actually wrote something in addition to what we had shared and their take and viewpoint on what I had experienced. And the social worker had put on the form, she put, oh, Elizabeth has experienced trauma. And I was completely baffled by that. And I, I, I remember reading that and thinking, I don't remember experiencing trauma. Well, why don't I remember experiencing mm. trauma? How, how, did, how was I not aware of that? And I think that was like a catalyst for like Pandora's box to open because it really started triggering off all these different feelings and, and you know, PTSD symptoms, all these different like rageful, you know, rage that was so intense. I didn't know what to do with it. And all the things that I had experienced growing up started to then, you know, make a bit more sense. But at the time, I didn't know for the whole of my adulthood that I was still experiencing flashbacks and PTSD and the intense rage. I didn't add that two, two and two together and think, well, that's because of what I've been through. I just thought I was a really angry person who had a lot of problems. And it was when the social worker said that, that I, I thought, wow, that's really bad. I had no idea. And I, I started to spiral into a really bad mental health crisis. I and mean, at the time, we were going through the adoption process and I couldn't say anything because I was so scared that they would turn around and say, well, you know, you're not in a position where you're ready to adopt. But I kept it to myself. I didn't even tell my husband because I was so terrified that I would be the one to stop us, you know, from having a child. And it was a real struggle to cope, to be honest. You know, for me, I'm not great at keeping anything to myself when it comes to, like, sharing how I feel, especially now. Um, but back then, yeah, I did. And it was only really when our son moved in with us and I, I, I struggled to adapt big time as a mum. It was a massive trigger for me from my own childhood experience. And, you know, at the time the social worker said to me, you do realise that, you know, when you have a child, it may trigger off, you know, your own trauma. And I just mm. kind of like dismissed it and said, yeah, I'll be, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'm, I'm, there's nothing wrong with me. I'll be fine. And actually, I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, and it was really... You know, the struggle to bond and every time I would kind of like, you know, look at my son, I kept thinking, you don't deserve to have me as a mother because I will just ruin your life the way mine was ruined. And I, you know, I didn't want to love him. I was too scared to love him in case something would happen and he'd be taken away. And 
he basically, um, because obviously, well, you know, when they're a baby, you have to change them and clean them and change the nappy and everything. For me, that was the most terrifying experience because I would get such severe flashbacks of my sexual abuse from my half-brother that my son began to take on a persona of, you know, my half-brother. He, he began to take on somebody who didn't exist. He only existed in my head. And I was so terrified. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm so scared of abusing my, my own son because that's what entered in my head. I was getting really, really horrendous, intrusive thoughts. And I was so scared by them. I just thought, I, I don't know what to do. I can't say anything. I don't know. You know, it absolutely paralyzed me with fear. I was so ashamed because I couldn't speak about it. And in the end, at that point, I was already having counseling. Um, and because my mental health deteriorated so much, I, I just thought, if I don't break this cycle, this will follow me around for the rest of my life. So I made the decision to go to the police and report my half-brother. And that was the start of kind of like my stepping stone to my healing. Wow. Elizabeth, what you just described is what I am, you know, and Claire and I are both parents as well. And we are sitting with our survivorship alongside what it means for our children. And when you said, I thought what you said was very important and helpful for either our, our listeners who don't have children, who are considering what it might mean for their survivorship to have children, and how it might make them feel. What do you think about this, Elizabeth? I almost think of my life trying to raise until now, and I'm sure will continue, my boys as two screenshots almost simultaneously running through my head. There's the one that I, I breathe the air, it's present tense, but I would say not even close to lesser than, almost equivalent to my present tense reality is also my past tense trauma that I'm thinking through yeah. every single stage. What do you think about that, Elizabeth? I think it's, it's very true. Exactly. I'm, I'm exactly the same. Mm-hmm. I, I am extremely like hyper vigilant mm-hmm. with my son, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I have to try so hard to work through my own anxieties around what could be and give him the space to be a child. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really difficult because, you know, when you've had obviously trauma and you've had everything about you suppressed because, you know, we wasn't allowed to be children, you know, mm-hmm. we wasn't allowed to have fun like normal children. Right. And, you know, to just watch him be carefree for me, it fills me with such joy, but it also scares me because I just think, my God, you know, this could so easily be taken away. And, you know, there are certain places that I don't allow him to go to and certain things that I won't allow him to, like, sleep over in places because I'm still not comfortable with that. Um, But, you know, I have to just, you know, for me, it's a continual process Mm. to allow him just to be himself, you know. But we also have a very open relationship in terms of, you know, if he wants to talk about anything, he knows the door is always open. I love all of that. Mm -hmm. May I just ask one more other part of that equation, which we've not spoken about, is your your husband, your partner. How, um, you know, I have one too, a he pronoun guy. 
Um, and he's not ever been abused. Not once, not ever. Tonight, you know, you're also talking about parenting your son. How does your husband play a yeah. role in that? Your partner? His parenting skills are more relaxed than me. So he has his own anxieties about, about parenting for different reasons. But, you know, thankfully, he comes from a very stable background in terms of he's not experienced any levels of abuse. Did he represent stability and like, okay, he doesn't get any part of this crazy abuse I went through. So I'll marry a rock. Like I, I kind of think I married a rock. Not that he is a rock. He does have emotions, but he's kind of a rock. Yeah. Because we started out as friends, I married my best friend. Mm. And, you know, that's the kind of like how I look at my relationship with my husband is that when we first got together, I didn't really tell him hardly anything about my background. Um, (laughs) And I didn't. I I love it. I really didn't. And I, I just... I just briefly mentioned it and that was it. It was end of conversation. It wasn't spoken about again. And it was only really, I think, probably around the time that we did, um, you know, go through the adoption process that stuff started to come out more and he could see the deterioration in my, in my mental health. What did he do when he assessed you that it was deteriorating for you? Did he you urged me to get help. Um, did he offer to he go did with urge you to, to get, get help? help. Did he say, you need help? Like, go get some help, girl. Like, I, I sense you're like kind of a more of a baggage claim item than I sensed. Or did he say, I'll go I don't, with you? I don't recall him coming with me. Mm. Um, but I don't think that was through, you know, the lack of not wanting to. It's just I probably wouldn't have wanted him to come with. And that's interesting. Um, and I think at the time, it wasn't... It was never spoken about. I didn't even mm. think about bringing him with. It wasn't something that I wanted to even discuss with him. Um, I, I, I didn't want to tell him what was in my head because I just thought, if you know what's in my head, you probably wouldn't stay with me. <laughs> so I kind of mm. kept a lot of it. I kept a lot of it to myself. And I think it was only when, you know, I was like suicidal um, and, you know, at the point where I just could barely function. Um, and he he realized that I really was struggling. But I think because of the fact that, you know, we were still not legally adoptive parents at that point, we didn't really address the issues because I think he was also really petrified of our son being taken away. Mm. Um, and I was too scared, you know, at that point I was too scared to even ask for help. But once I did ask for help, I think it was a huge relief for him to mm. finally just kind of like have, that support because I don't think he knew what to do you know he, he he knew that he was there for me but he really didn't know how to help and it was a real struggle for him to be honest because you know at that point he's more aware now but at that point he didn't understand the complexities of child sexual abuse and what it involves and you know how it rips the family apart when you start talking about it and open up um and you know at that stage he urged me to not say anything to anybody he backed me up when I went to the police, but in terms of breaking the news to everybody else in the family, he just didn't want to see everyone being torn apart. And, you know, at that stage, he didn't get it. Well, I'm wondering if, if Elizabeth, you would be willing to share maybe one of your poems from your first book, because you have two. Yeah. That, and these books kind of are reflective or mm. of, of your journey, because one, you know, Love the it. one that's more recent, 
you're in a different healing space, right? So yeah. would you be willing to share one from each? Like we need, when was the first book? When was the second book? And what, what time lapse happened in between? And the titles. If you don't mind, yeah. Elizabeth, could you share both yeah. and the time timeline? So, so the first book is called Silhouette of the Songbird. And I wrote it over the period of two years because I had never planned on putting the book together or sharing my poetry. And if I can just give a brief, brief history of how I came to put the book together. Um, basically, yes. I, I started off my creative journey through um, going to choir um, because my counselor at the time suggested I needed an outlet for dealing with all my rage that I just couldn't handle. And she said, I really think you would benefit from going somewhere um, that would, you know, just something, a hobby, take up something. So she suggested a choir, which I said, no, I don't think so. I don't sing, even in the shower. Um, but I went just to keep it quiet. And I found that when I went to the choir, I just loved the fact that I had a voice for the first time. It was very liberating and really empowering. It's like, oh, my God, I can actually sing out loud and no one's going to say, be quiet. You know, we don't want to hear you. So after a while, my choir teacher suggested to me that I take up singing lessons because I think she was hinting that I probably needed some. Um, and so I did. I took up some singing lessons. I had a really lovely vocal coach. And she also made a suggestion and said, well, I really think you would benefit from taking up drama classes. And I said to her, God, no, I hate things like that. I don't want to be you know, seen. I don't want to stand up in public and start reciting anything. I never did that in school. I hated it, but I just thought, okay, because she just said, you have a lot of difficulty expressing yourself because for me, it's very vulnerable to be able to want to express myself. I didn't want to do that. But anyway, I found this drama teacher who practically just changed my life. She actually changed my life and how I look at things. She encouraged me to start writing and she suggested I just, you know, just start writing any, anything. So I did. And at that time, I hadn't written any poetry. I hadn't even read any poetry. And the day after my dad was buried was when I wrote my first poem. And it started from there. I hadn't planned on putting them in the book. And it got to a point where I'd reached probably as low as I could possibly get around the anniversary of my dad's birthday. And I couldn't cope any longer I just knew that I wanted to end my life I just felt like I was such a burden to everybody and I just put this plea on Facebook to say that I can't do this anymore I'm not prepared to carry the shame of my sins of my dad and everybody that's done all these things to me I can't do this anymore I just don't want to be here and you know I need help and I did get a lot of support but I went into hiding because I wasn't used to feeling that way so we went away and we went to the beach, we went to on holiday, and I stood by the ocean on a very stormy day, and I saw all these waves thrashing around, and I just knew that I wanted to give every pain and every bit of emotion to the ocean and just say, here, I don't want it. You take it. I don't want it anymore. It's yours to take. And it just felt like I could hear God's voice coming back to me or something, just acknowledging the fact that. I hear what you're saying. You've experienced this pain and I acknowledge what you've been through and you, you still have to be here. You have to share your story and you need to share with the world your poetry and what you've been through and know that other people can get through this. You're meant to be here to survive the storm 
and share your life so you can give hope to other survivors. And at that point, I knew that I could hold my head up and say, I acknowledge what I've been through. And that's basically when I put, put my book together. So that book, Still in the Songbird, got released February of last year. So there's a lot of poems to share, but I'm going to share one which is called Broken Glass, which is about the shame that you feel when you're abused. Um, who wants to drink from a broken glass, sordid and stained, left over and used, hidden in the depths of despair behind heavy doors? Who wants to drink from a broken glass? Wine cannot pour into fragmented shard, ready to split the soul. Who wants to drink from a broken glass? Open the cupboard and pick something new, all shiny and bright, singing melodious tunes. Who wants to drink from a broken glass? Find the one not shattered in two, for it's too heavy a burden to carry ruptured pieces. Who wants to drink from a broken glass? Hold the shame from displaying dirty wares. Conceal the evidence, wipe away the signs. Who wants to drink from a broken glass? Too late, the damage is done. Hold it up to the light and witness the flaws. Who wants to drink from a broken glass? No one will know if a sip is taken. I won't tell if you don't. <clears throat> that was so beautiful, Elizabeth. Thank you for sharing it. Um, I, you know, we, I don't even, words unspoken. Go ahead, Claire. <laughs> I think that a lot of, yeah, it's, mm. the imagery is really um, profound, I think. And, and I'm sure that so many survivors of trauma see themselves as that, as a broken glass or pieces of glass. And it's, I, I read, when I read that poem and I did read that one, I thought, what, this is so evocative. Mm. And the other yeah. thing I would, I really, would add, it says where you were. Yep. And I would also add, Elizabeth, <laughs> I think your strength and your commitment to life, despite your abuse, I hope will inspire our listeners who are struggling with what the meaning of living is. It's the same theme you spoke of when you said, I tried to pretend to be dead. And yet here you are alive, well, thriving, contributing, mm -hmm. giving heart and hope. And the journey you took us on through our, our, our talk with you has been just the metamorphosis of a, a butterfly. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, truly, um, Elizabeth, I'm so grateful for your time, so grateful for your honesty, and I hope very much your words and your journey will empower others to not only just live, not only just to resurrect, <laughs> not only to come back and be a better version of themselves through their trauma comes this delightful understanding of the largesse of pain and your poet poetry expresses that so my great grateful appreciation elizabeth thank you yes same here too thank same here um, I was wondering if we could close out with just one of your shorter poems from your new book. I was looking at, <laughs> okay. I was thinking, um, jumping the waves or, or listen with a smile. I mean, they, they're short, um, mm -hmm. and be a wonderful way to close out. But before we do, let me just do the little wind up and then we'll end with Elizabeth's second I love poem. that. I love that idea. Thank you. 
Um, again, thank you, Elizabeth, for um, joining us today and sharing your life, your journey, and um, your wisdom and your poetry with us. And we're also grateful to all of you who um, listened in today. If you need support but don't know where to find it, visit tapebackthenight.org for a list of resources and how to reach our legal support hotline. And you can also help other survivors by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it far and wide. So please consider posting it on your social media and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by an amazing group of volunteers. So thank you to all of them. And thank you listeners for being present today. And always remember, self-care is essential to healing and to thriving. So thank you. And Elizabeth, you want to share your second poem with us? Yes, so the second poem is from my new book, which was released in March of this year, and it's called Rainbow of Promise is the name of the book. And the poem I'm going to read is called Listen with a Smile. What is laughter without a smile, I whispered, as the trees bowed their branches to listen. You heard me when throughout far and wide, no one else dared. Until now, when heavens opened their eyes and wept as I danced freely in the raindrops, what is my life if it, if it is not for living, whether with quiet voice or powerful roar, gently easing out of the mist or basking boldly in the brightness of warmth? Whatever I choose, wherever I go, I am no longer alone. Thank you. Beautiful, Elizabeth. Thank you so much again. This has been our delight and honor to sit with you in your journey and listen to all of your, not only your story, but also your beautiful poetry. So. For all of our listeners, please continue to to join us for every episode of Dear Kitty Survivor Stories. Together, we will find ways through our healing journeys and survivorship. Thank you, and tune in again. Uh, Any closing words, Elizabeth, and then Claire? Um, So for all survivors, never give up hope. There is always light at the end of the tunnel, and find your passion, even if it's something small. Find something that you'd love to nurture for yourself. Thank you for that. And thank you all for joining us tonight. And thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you and take care. We'll see you again for another episode.